It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing Weekend Edition. That's right, this is a Rule Breaker Investing Podcast Extra, and I'm delighted that you're spending a little bit more time with me this weekend. Now, it's not every RBI Extra that includes someone like Dan Pink. Dan, the author of six provocative books, including his newest, When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, which has spent four months on the New York Times bestseller list. His other books, by the way, the long-running New York Times bestseller, A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestseller's Drive, and To Sell is Human. In fact, Dan's books have, of course, won multiple awards and have been translated into 37 languages. We had the pleasure of having Dan Pink as one of our guests at Full Fest three weeks ago, and I got to do this interview with him. We aired a portion of this interview a few weeks ago on this podcast with our Stock Stories Volume 2, where Dan told an awesome stock story. You're going to hear that again here, because we excerpted that from this. But this is the full-length interview, and I think it's perfect listening for a Saturday jog. So I hope you'll enjoy Dan Pink and me at Fool Fest. And if you find yourself short on time, I can highly recommend the final few minutes of this interview, where Dan is asked to deliver an improv spontaneous commencement speech lasting of approximately 60 seconds duration. I think he does a great job with that. Yep, we sprung that challenge on him. He had no idea where things were headed as the music started. So, super fun. But I hope, in particular, you'll enjoy this interview because it's not just about his most recent book. It's really about all of his books and thinking through the work of his life. So let's begin right away with your new book, Dan Wen. Um, I've, I've seen you speak about it a couple of times. It's already influenced me. I want you to know I had an age-appropriate medical procedure that you're supposed to have after the age of 50 recently. Okay. It starts with a C. I bet some of you have had this. And I intentionally scheduled it for the morning because that became a big deal to me thanks to your book. Could you just start right there and let's talk about, um, well, the idea that when we do things matters as much or more than how we do things. And when you look at a typical day, Dan Pink, um, what, what should we be doing when? Here's what, so the last book I wrote uh, came out a few months ago. It's called When. It's about the science of timing. And the main point is that it is just that, that we tend to think of the timing, make the decisions we make about when to do things. We make those decisions based on intuition and guesswork. That's the wrong way to make them. Uh, we should be making them based on what turns out to be this very rich body of science across multiple disciplines that give us clues, evidence, data to make these decisions about when to do things in a smarter, more strategic uh, way. And one of the things that you see, especially in healthcare, is, I mean, as, as your friend, I'm glad that you got your colonoscopy in the morning, because in the morning, appointment of significance or any kind of medical procedure um, in the afternoon, the data are overwhelming. So let's go back to colonoscopies. Um, doctors find half as many polyps in afternoon exams as they do in morning exams for the same population. Um, uh, anesthesia errors, four times more likely at 3 p.m. than at 9 a.m. Uh, hand washing in hospitals, goes down, which is not that high to begin with, goes down considerably in the afternoon. And one of the things that the science of timing tells us is, at a, at a broad level, is that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. Our cognitive abilities change over the course of a day. The difference between the daily high point and the daily low point can be significant. And 
a, a when we should do things depends on what it is that we're doing. And um, and the evidence are pretty. The evidence is pretty remarkable, especially on healthcare. But you also see the same effect in education. You see it in corporate performance. You see it in, in the markets. When we take breaks during the day, what kinds of breaks should we we be taking when? Sure. So uh, there's a whole science of, of breaks, and here's a, the the big idea here on, on breaks is this: that I think that the science of breaks, and there's some real. Here, here's the thing about this research: there is a there's a huge amount of research out there on this topic. The trouble is, is that the research is, in in some ways, I think it's analogous to certain kinds of investment opportunities. In a way, I'm just I'm making this up, so I'm a little bit nervous because I really don't know the next sentence that's going to come out of my mouth. But the <laughs> the um, is that. You know, how do we look for investment opportunities? We look for things that other people are, are missing, right? And so what's happening right now in the world of research is that you have, in this particular realm, you have research in, in economics and in social psychology that is asking what's the effect of time of day on what we do and how we do it? How do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? How do groups synchronize in time? But these que same questions are being asked in molecular biology. These same questions are being asked in the field of chronobiology, the same an entirely, an entire field devoted to the study of our rhythms. The same questions are being asked in, in epidemiology and in anesthesiology and in endocrinology and in anthropology and in cognitive science. And yet, these disparate fields don't talk to each other. They don't realize that they're all asking very similar questions. And so if you go wide enough and deep enough into this research, you can begin to put together like the evidence-based ways to do this kind of stuff more systematically. And this goes to David's question about breaks. Throughout this, these, these disparate fields, there's a lot of research on breaks. And my view of it is this, that breaks, the science of breaks, is where the science of sleep was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, it was a badge of honor in some cases to come in and say, I, I pulled an all-nighter last night. I'm massively sleep-deprived. I'm so committed to this organization that I'm only getting by on three hours of sleep. And you know, back in the old days when I was working in organizations, I actually used to admire that. I used to feel bad about myself because it was really hard for me to do that. And now, 15 years later, once we understand the science of sleep, we say to that guy, and it's always a guy who, you know, who got three hours of sleep or pulled two consecutive all-nighters, you're not a hero, you're an idiot. Go, go home and get some sleep. You're hurting your performance. You're probably hurting everybody else's performance. And the science of breaks is where the science of sleep was. What we know about breaks is the following. We should be taking more breaks, and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. At a broad level, this is something that I got wrong. I always believed, I'm not a good break, I have not been a good break taker. I always believed that professionals, that amateurs took breaks and professionals didn't. And that's 100% wrong. That's as wrong as a statement can be. It's the exact opposite. Professionals take breaks, amateurs don't take breaks, and when I can finally steer this 18-wheeler to actually answer David's question directly, what we know, <laughs> is about breaks is the following, that there's some very good research on that give us design principles about what kinds of breaks to take. Here's what we know about the right kinds of breaks to take. One, something is better than nothing. And so even micro breaks can improve your performance. Micro breaks as short as something like uh, something that I do sometimes, which is called 20-20-20, which is every 20 minutes, look at something 20, if you're working at a computer, every 20 minutes, look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. Even that can actually improve alertness and mental acuity. We know that, so something is better than nothing. Um, we know that moving is better than stationary, big time. So I think that's become 
pretty well known. We know that social is better than solo, that breaks with other people are more restorative than breaks on our own. Uh, and in fact, the remedy in the study by Katie Milkman at Penn and Brad Statz at UNC, um, where they showed that deterioration in hand washing in hospitals, the remedy for that, that got hand washing back up, was to give nurses more breaks and to encourage them to take social breaks, breaks with other nurses. That ended up getting hand washing back up. We know that outside is better than inside, and we know that a fully detached is better than semi-detached. So leave your phone behind, uh, don't talk about work. And I, I really, I think the science is clear enough that if the, the U.S. workforce, I truly believe that there would be an uptick in productivity writ large if white-collar workers every afternoon took a 10-minute break, walking around outside with someone they liked, talking, leaving their phone behind and talking about something other than work. I think that that regular habit would actually be a, pro, would be a massive productivity enhancer for no cost. So four years ago, you were probably hatching this idea. I'm not sure. When did you actually start with when? How does a Dan Pink book come together? Um, so I have a... I'm trying not to empty the room with a long, tortured, tortured answer here. The, um, so I, I keep a regular list of ideas um, and in, 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 in files. I keep Dropbox file of ideas, I keep an Evernote file of ideas, I keep a paper file of ideas, and I keep an email folder file of ideas. So I'll encounter something and I say, hey, that could be an interesting idea for an article, for a book, for a television show, for whatever. And I'll just throw it in there and then every six months or so I will um, come back to those ideas and cull them and most of the ideas suck. And over time, when I go back to them, a few ideas will bubble to the surface. Hey, there's something about this I keep coming back to. Hey, there's something about this I keep coming back to. Hey, there's something about this I keep coming, I keep coming back to. And, um, and, and um, I write a book proposal. Uh, and last time, this is what I'm trying to think about. Last, for this book, I actually wrote, I like to write book proposals, um, not so much in order to sell the book, but as a test of whether the idea is solid. That is, if you can write um, 30 pages explaining what the book is, who's going to buy it, why it's interesting, why it fills a gap that no one has filled before, why you're the ideal person to write it, then that's a very good test of concept. In some ways, it's like a business plan. You can say, ooh, I should start a chain of, I should start a chain of, you know, of, uh, of uh, rutabagas, the root vegetable that will change the world. I'm going to have a whole stand of like rutabaga, rutabaga kiosks all over the world. And like that's, sort, that's an idea. But if you start writing a business plan, ooh, how much do rutabagas actually cost? Does anybody like rutabagas? What can you do with rutabagas? How many times will Dan say rutabagas in this conversation? Um, you realize, wait a second, there's not a there there. And so I had, um, so, so I actually wrote two proposals last time for which there wasn't a there there, and then came to writing about when, which is on the list, and it was like butter. It's just like, this is such a good idea. I love this idea. And I wanna, I wanna um, there's some ideas that you wanna date um, go out on a few dates with. There are other ideas that you want to go steady with, maybe move in with, maybe get married. So whenever you did first come up with this idea, let's go back to that Dan Pink. Now yeah. looking at the 2018 Dan Pink, who's already written the book and knows it, yeah. how does this Dan Pink surprise or look different to that Dan Pink? How does, I'm sorry. How does this book change your own habits Oh my life? God, this book probably more than any book I've written changed how I do things. So, so truly, I'm not joking around about this, this medical stuff. Um, um, uh, my my uh, younger daughter is having her wisdom, 19 year old is having her wisdom teeth taken out, um, and it's like there's no question in our family what time of day she's getting her wisdom teeth taken out because she's going to go under general anesthesia. It's like she will absolutely like I will 
stand in front of the door if preventing her from leaving our house if there was an appointment scheduled in the afternoon with general anesthesia for one of my kids, period, full stop. We changed, uh, my, my mother-in-law had um, uh, a heart procedure uh, uh, six weeks ago, and my wife, who was navigating things for her, negotiated with the hospital to do something out of the ordinary and do the procedure in the morning rather than in the afternoon. I mean, so I, this is like, for real on that one. So uh, I also changed the way that I, I conduct my own schedule because one of the things that we know about the pattern of the day is that we go through the day in three broad cycles. There's a peak, a trough, and a recovery. And we do different things better at different points on that cycle. So during the peak, which for most of us is the morning, for night owls it's much later in the day, um, we're better at doing analytic work, work that requires heads down focus, attention, and energy. And so I changed my own schedule so that um, I do all my writing in the morning um, um, because that's the, my best time of day. And I will, I will uh, on writing days, I will not bring my phone into the office. Um, I will not check my email. I will um, uh, not answer, you know, not take any phone calls, not do anything until I hit that that number. And so for this book, I was really, really rigid in how I wrote it based when I got a wind of this research. So I would come into the office every morning, shut everything down, give myself a word count, and not do a thing before I hit that word count in the morning. So I would probably wrote this book, 90% of the words in this book before noon. And actually, no, no joke, this is the first book I've delivered on time. That's awesome. I'm, I'm, that's, I wish it were a joke. It's not. <laughs> do you know what your next book is going to be? No. What, what, you got an idea? Because I, I got a two-book contract. I'm desperate here. So if you guys, if you guys got anything, let me know. <laughs> so broadening it a little bit, Dan, obviously so much of your writing and your work has been about the changing nature of work, of motivation. Let's, let's go to work for a sec, changing nature of work. So um, automation. Oh, yeah. AI. Oh, yeah. How do you think AI will change work? It's a great question. I think we don't. I think we don't know. Um, I think we can use certain ways of reasoning through this this issue. Um, uh, so, so as it turns out, I wrote a book about 10, 11 years ago called "A Whole New Mind," and the argument behind that book was that certain kinds of abilities that were um, that were uh, the that basically the the thing that propelled you to the middle class, what we can think of as SAT spreadsheet abilities, logical, linear, sequential abilities, abilities that were metaphorically left brain. My argument was that those abilities were becoming commoditized. They were easy to outsource. They were easy to automate. And that that was putting a premium on these kinds of abilities, abilities more characteristic of the right hemisphere of the brain, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking. And what I did, in, and I have a chapter on automation in that book um, about how Things are, be, you know, how a lot of kinds of left brain functions are being automated. So you have, um, I grew up in the American Midwest when the Rust Belt was rusting, and that was a change in the structure of work there, and even in the kind of advice that parents, middle class parents, gave their kids that you couldn't, like routine factory jobs, factory jobs that were basically about doing repetitive tasks over and over again, were no longer the path to the middle class. So parents told their kids to become accountants or engineers or, or lawyers, and the argument was is that a lot of the, the, the actual tasks in those professions were actually uh, at risk of being automated and outsourced because they were routine. And so an example would be something like, you know, basic, basic tax preparation and TurboTax. 
All right, and and we often get this we often get this wrong. So you have every year, every April, CNN does a story about chartered accountants in Manila doing American processing American tax returns for four hundred dollars a month, and some sad sack personal accountant in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, who is losing business as a consequence of that, and they never mention anything like TurboTax. I mean, any of you do your taxes on, on TurboTax? Anybody? Yeah, look at that. So you're the people with accountant blood on your hands. Um, like, that's what's, that's, what's killing, that's what's killing accounting jobs. So, so you have the automation of these kinds of white-collar tasks and the outsourcing of these white-collar tasks. The point of this is that the, the rise of AI was far steeper than I would have expected. And so I didn't, ex so for instance, I wrote about um, how, like empathy, the, our ability to read facial expressions is something that is very, very difficult to automate. And it turns out, it's actually less difficult than we thought. Um, and so that, that, that kind of capacity, which I thought would be impervious to that, whoa, actually, you might be able to automate that. So I think that the world of, of AI, to, 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 to make a long story short, which I've never done in my adult life, is, um, <laughs> is this, that um, um, I think it's going to have an effect. I think it's going to be neither utopian nor dystopian. Um, in, the, in, in 1999, I, I ordered on eBay a bunch of books by futurists from the middle of the 20th century who were projecting out to 2000. I was going to do a piece on this. What did people think was going to happen in the year 2000? And basically, the distribution of these texts, these pundits, these thinkers, was this. You had about you know, 45% of people predicting massive dystopia, charred lands, maybe 40%, charred landscape, you know, widespread unemployment because of these things called computers. Then you had about 55% of people saying, you know, utopia, you know, um, uh, we're going to only be able to have to work five hours a week, the rest of it's going to be leisure, you, everyone is going to be having sex without consequence, it's going to be you know, this incredible utopian vision. And then you had about 5% of people saying, um, I think it'll be a little better. And, and it turned out that like the 5% were the ones who were right, you know? And so I sort of like using that as a heuristic for figuring, to, analyzing this thing, I was like, yeah, you know what? It's probably gonna make things a little bit better. There's gonna absolutely be some disruption. There already is. Um, we're not in this country taking, um, we're, we're doing a terrible job of just being willing to leave people behind. Um, but um, I think that AI is gonna replace some jury tasks, and I think that what we're gonna do for a living are things that augment machine intelligence uh, rather than compete with machine intelligence. But I don't see a utopia, nor do I see a dystopia. I see things basically a little bit better with some social consequences that it's a political decision whether we address. So on the robot continuum in 10, we are all submitting to the robot overlords in one what me worry? You are five-ish? Six? Four? Yeah, I'm probably, actually probably a, uh, four and a half. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, um, I just, you know, if I'm wrong, I'm screwed, you know, but, um, <laughs> but I just don't, I just don't find this, you know, based on previous predictions, okay, but what we can do is we can go back and we can look, you know, I'm, it's true in investing, all right? This time it's different. How many times have you heard that in investing? This time it's different. This time it's different. It's usually not, right? And so in this case, it's like, this time it's different. Probably not. And so that's just my, that's just my bet. It's not based on any kind of emotion. It's just based on how, you know, the history of things is generally that there is some progress that things get a little bit better over time, but there's very rarely a sharp, 
bottom falling out, nor is there rare, rarely a you know, steep path to, to nirvana. It just, it's different from that. So we haven't I'm, told you I'm this. I'm a four and a half. Okay, good. We haven't told you this, Dan, so I'm springing this on you a little bit, but we've taken your six books and we've fed all of that data into a program at The Motley Fool, and we've inserted that into what we've been calling just internally, this is prototypical, <laughs> Pinkbot. Pinkbot is shortly going to go autonomous, and I'm curious whether you'd be willing to meet with Pinkbot and what you would imagine dis discussing with Pinkbot. Uh, yeah, I, I would think that, um, that Pinkbot would have a lot in common with it, the source of its inspiration uh, in that it would have no idea what it's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he might have your next book idea. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but even something like that. Okay, so, so, but I think it's a great question, David, and I think it's really interesting, and I think it's a good lens through which to look at this. Um, I think that you can um, use some of these tools to make writing better. I think it's unlikely that Pinkbot is going to come up with a great idea. I think it's unlikely that Pinkbot is going to be able to envision something that people don't realize that they, that they need not. I think Pinkbot is gonna be less likely to see a gap in the marketplace. Now what Pinkbot can do is say, um, and I'm pretty anal retentive and data oriented in the way I do things, especially for a writer. So what I do think is that you can use some of those analytic tools to make writing better, all right, which is heresy among some writers. So what I do just is that when I, when I, um, 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 I have a sense of, what writing that sounds like me, the, the data behind what writing that sounds like me is like. Mm -hmm. I know that the, my best writing, and I've done some, you know, it's very rudimentary. My best writing has a certain number of passive, certain percentage of passive sentences. Okay, it doesn't have zero, but it's usually between like two and three percent. Um, I know that, that the grade level at which you can do measures of grade level in, in, in writing, I know that certain grade level and complexity, I know that the, the stuff that sounds like me, the stuff where I feel like I'm doing my best work, has those kinds of calibrations, and I will actually look at drafts based on that. And, and I think that it helps, me make, it helps make, make me a better writer. Why does this chapter stink? Oh, it's way too complex, or you're, you're, not being, you're, you're backing into the argument because then I can tell I'm backing into an argument rather than asserting an argument if like 9% of the sentences are passive tense. It's like, hmm, this is a diagnostic tool to help me make my writing better. But I just don't see Pinkbot coming up with a totally cool, groovy idea that gets people excited. <laughs> Darn it. Maybe we'll shelve Pinkbot. <laughs> uh, this is unfair. I think my brother Tom did this a few years ago, so I have to do it again. So from the Department of the Unfair, Dan, your six books. Um, well, let me just preface by saying that I, you gave a wonderful talk at Conscious Capitalism uh, last year at our CEO Summit. Uh, and one of the things that I remember you saying is that behind every great speech, and one of Dan's many bits of acclaim in his past is that he's been a presidential speechwriter, behind every great speech you said are three things, brevity, levity, and repetition, to which I might add brevity. <laughs> but let's unfairly ask you then yeah. to summarize each of your six books in order. I'll just spot you up. One sentence, the Cliff's Notes, the Pink Notes take. Totally fair question. On the book. Okay, good. So let's start with. This is a totally fair question, and, and, and I'll see you and raise you. If I can't do that, I should be in another business. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> 
Dan has taken this level, uh, this conversation up to a standard that I can't actually maintain myself. But it sort of, it sort of, <laughs> it sort of reminds me of that old joke about like, well, like this Woody Allen joke. I probably, it's probably not good citing Woody Allen now that I realize that. But the, the, um, um, there's, a, there's Woody Allen says, you know, Woody Allen has this old joke where he says, I take a, I took a speed, a speed reading course. You know this. I do totally. <laughs> I love this one. So, so I took a speed reading course. Oh really? Yeah, was it good? Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, I read War and Peace in like 15 minutes. Oh, really? Wow, what was it about? It was about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> so in that spirit, Dan, your first book, Free Agent Nation, in a sentence. Um, it's about the rise of people working, it's the rise of people leading large organizations, working for themselves, and discusses uh, how it happened, what it means, and where it's going. The Adventures of Johnny Bunko. Uh, this was a graphic novel uh, that told the story of a guy named Johnny Bunko, uh, who threw a... Um, set of magic chopsticks learns the six essential lessons in any satisfying productive career. Well done. A whole new, and that was a graphical novel. A whole new mind. Oh, well, we, already, we, we talked about that yeah, before. It's, it's about the, uh, the shift in the economy away from logical, linear, sequential, left-brain skills to more artistic, empathic, right-brain, um, big-picture skills. Again, why it's happening and what to do about it. Drive. Uh, this looks at 50 years of, of behavioral science and finds that certain kinds of motivators that we rely on in organizations actually don't work very well for complex, creative, long-term work and that we should replace them with a different suite of motivators, in particular autonomy, mastery, and purpose. He's pretty good, isn't he? <laughs> Let's go to Tessalus Human. That's a harder one. This book makes the argument that um, a huge portion of what we do every day on our job is sell, but that we're doing it on a remade landscape, a landscape that has moved from one of information uh, as, uh, uh, asymmetry to information parity, and what this means and what we should do about it. That wasn't that good. And I'm, I'm going to skip when, because I think you've nailed that one. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so back to Pink Pong. Um, so uh, actually, Dan, on, on my podcast, Rule Breaker Investing, this coming week, we're going to tell stock stories. A lot of people talk about story stocks. I mm -hmm. like to reverse it and tell stock stories. Mm -hmm. You have an awesome stock story, and I'm just going to spot you up with it. And this is going to appear on my podcast. So you know, start with Once Upon a Time, once I spot you up. But this is the one about a guy you got to know through social media who had an idea for a company and a stock that you may or may not have. Oh, in the cereal. Yes. Okay. Wait, wait, sorry? The cereal boxes? Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah. once upon a time. Okay. Uh, so, uh, once upon a time, um, in the middle of the first decade of this century, um, I wrote a book called A Whole New Mind. It had an orange cover. And um, one of the ideas in the book, um, which I'm not sure is totally right anymore, but is that um, I had this argument that the MFA, the Masters of Fine Art, the MFA is the new MBA, right? The MFA is the new MBA because a lot of MBA skills can be outsourced and automated. The skills of an MFA, the Masters of Fine Art, are harder to outsource and harder to automate. Therefore, it would be, they would be more valuable. The MFA is the new MBA. Um, that idea got me invited to a lot of art and design schools. Um, um, <laughs> And because everybody loves confirming their own biases. Um, and uh, in the course of going to a, a, um, um, uh, this, I, I went to the Rhode Island School of Design, one of the premier art and design colleges in America, just an incredible institution. And there I met a young man, um, 
I'm not going to even tell you his name. I'm just going to tell you. I met a young man who came up to me after the speech and talked to me a little bit and then sent me, and sent me an email and, um, afterwards and asked me some questions. And I responded to the email. And he seemed like a good dude. This guy, I, thought, I liked this guy. I thought he was super creative. And, um, and um, maybe a year later, two years later, he emailed me. And um, he said, I thought he was just a super creative guy. And, and he said, oh, I, you know, I got this crazy idea for a business. And uh, he told me about the business. And I thought it was the most... Asinine, like absurd. <laughs> it's just absurd, an absurd idea. But as a way to raise money for it, because he was a pretty skilled uh, designer and a very creative guy, he decided, this is now 2008, he decided to do a set of limited edition cereal boxes. This is going to sound weird. Limited edition cereal boxes, where he and some of his design colleagues created these two boxes of cereal. Literally, it had cereal in it, um, and the box, one, one brand was called Obama O's, all right? Hope in every box. Um, and the other one was called Cap'n, C-A-P apostrophe N, all right? Cap'n McCain's, all right? So one was for McCain, and they, and, and they said, we're going to do these things to raise a little bit of money. We're going to do these limited edition cereal boxes. And so there are actually works of art in the limited edition, and each cereal box had stamped on it, you know, number four of 500, number six of 500, or whatever. And I thought, that's pretty good. And these things, and, and I'm, I'm actually, I mean, I, I actually really enjoy um, uh, fine art, particularly conceptual art. I, like, I like going to the Hirshhorn, and I like, like this sort of more um, uh, outre, um, forgive my French, um, 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 kinds of art and these kind of wacky things. And they were selling it, and I liked this guy, and I said, this guy could be a famous artist one day, and it'd be really cool if this guy were like the next Andy Warhol or Jeff Koons or something like that, and I had one of his early pieces. And so for a tiny little amount, you know, literally, I think they were like 75 bucks a piece, I bought these things, and, and I said to this young man, this is totally cool. I mean, you know, um, it's cool that you're raising money for this business, um, but, you know, I'm buying these things because I think you're gonna, you could probably be a, a well-known artist and this is my investment, but, like, I would never put a cent into your company. Um, and, um, and so I have in my office, and I'll, I think David might have seen these, I have in my office these cereal boxes because they look really nice. They're super cool looking. And it's, so it's Obama O's, Captain McCain, and um, on the top of it, it says, you know, a product of Air Bed and Breakfast. Thank you. <laughs> so, you know that old, like, you know that old line, it's like, you know, the country song, it's like, you know, um, you got the coal mine and I got the shaft. <laughs> um, the, um, the, uh, so I didn't want to say his name to tip it, but it's Joe, a fellow named Joe Gebbia, who is now, like, I don't know, what, the 41st richest person in the world. And, um, and um, so Joe got the billion dollar company that's going to go public next year, but I've got my cereal, man. <laughs> All right, let's, let's open it up to some of our audience questions. I'm just going to fire these. We truly will go ping pong because there's some great ones here and I want to get through. We only have like 10 minutes, so okay. let's go, Dan. Okay, good. So is there evidence that a siesta improves outcomes in the afternoon? Is there evidence? Yes, there is. There's actually a lot of evidence on, on napping. Uh, um, now, the full-fledged, like, three-hour siesta, no. But um, in terms of taking breaks and naps as a component of taking breaks, uh, the evidence, the science behind napping is overwhelming. Naps are powerful. Naps are Zambonis for our brain. Um, they smooth... 
So there's a Canadian here, apparently. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, let's go Caps. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Yeah. No, so for those of you who are, have no idea what I'm talking about, so the Zamboni is this machine that comes out in between periods and in hockey games to smooth over the, the ice. Um, and so, but what we know about naps is the best naps are incredibly short. So the ideal nap is between 10 to 20 minutes long. But if you take a 10 or 20 minute nap, you get a huge amount of cognitive benefit without the downdraft of sleep inertia. Another fellow fool says, I drive the Beltway every day, and I have long noticed there are more accidents in the evening than in the morning. Is it just my imagination, or is this documented somewhere proving the science of timing? A great, great question, and that is documented, but the causal, the, 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 the causal mechanism is a little bit different. The reason that they're... Give me, the, give me his timing again. Sure, yeah. Beltway, evening rather yeah. than morning. Okay. Accidents. The, the, the reason that there are more accidents on the Beltway in the evening rush hour is that there are more cars on the road. Okay. However, so but your instincts are good here. I just want to be clear to that, because there's research on this. I want to be clear to this. If you adjust for that, if you adjust for cars on the road, okay, because again, it just, it's, it's really relatively simple math. The more cars there are, it, and it moves exponentially, the more cars there are on the road, the more possibility of collision. And, it, and it's not linear, it's exponential, right? So, but once you adjust for that, and um, it turns out the most dangerous time to be on the road is between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. I don't think that's a big surprise. It's dark, and like, who the hell's on the road at 4 a.m., right? <laughs> but to, to your point, to the instincts of this questioner, he or she is onto something. The second most dangerous time to be on the road, once you adjust for cars on the road, is between 2, 2 p.m. and 4 p.m., hmm. that, that downdraft. That's a very dangerous time to be on the road. There just aren't that many cars on the road. What should we be changing in our schools to increase productivity? These days, some schools are going to block scheduling with fewer classes, but longer class times. Your thoughts? Um, there are a lot of issues there, um, a lot of, uh, of, of really big issues there. Let me cite one study and then one, one thing to do about it. Um, what, what we know pretty much for younger kids is that um, they're better off doing analytic kinds of work in the morning. So there's a great study out of Denmark where kids, um, in Denmark students take standardized tests as they do here in the States. But in Denmark they take the tests on computers rather than on pencil and paper. But the typical Danish school has more students than computers, so everybody can't take the test at the same time. So the kids are randomly distributed, randomly assigned. Some take it in the morning, some take it in the afternoon. And Francesca Gino at Harvard, along with some other researchers, looked at two million Danish test scores, and they found that taking the test in the afternoon versus taking the test in the morning for elementary school kids, if you took the test in the afternoon, it was like missing two weeks of school. There's a big difference between the performance in the afternoon and in the morning. So for, and there's some great research out of the LA Unified School District showing that kids learn more math if they take math in the morning. So for, so for especially for little kids, having those kinds of things in the morning is, a, is one really important remedy. Now, it's complicated by the fact that our biology changes as we age, and around the middle teens, people have a massive shift toward lateness. They become they go from being larks to being very significant owls. There's a shift toward lateness. And so one of the worst things going on in middle school, and especially high school, is starting school early. Um, school starts too early for, for teenagers. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has implored schools, do not start school for teenagers before 8.30 in the morning. And, but the typical start time for teenagers in America is 8.03. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, has studied this issue as well. And I mean, early start times for teenagers, it leads to uh, uh, higher rates of depression, higher rates of obesity, more car crashes, more dropouts, lower test scores. And so for teenagers, moving the school start time 
like to 915 or 930 is one of the most cost-effective education reform things that we can do. So there's two ideas on that. Love this next one. I'm a retired RN who worked in operating rooms, ER, and ICU. What do you suggest for hospitals? Do they close down? OR is at noon? Have enough employees or an anesthesiologist to completely switch out the crew? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, uh, to, to be fair to hospitals, I think a lot of them are really reckoning with it. So, for instance, in the book, I write about going to the University of Michigan Medical Center um, and standing in, on a sur standing in on surgery. And one of the things is that they've, they've changed their approach to how they do surgery. So we were standing around the table. This fellow had just totally smashed up jaw. And um, before the, the medical professionals began the surgery, they, they literally took a time out. And they literally, literally took a step couple steps back from the table and they reviewed a checklist and that's a way for mitigating some of the that's a way for mitigating some of the harm um, as I said before in that study of nurses giving nurses more breaks and social breaks can boost things back up um, and you know it's possible I think the, the first step is 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 awareness that we, we don't take these issues of when as seriously as we take these questions of what people are doing but the data are pretty clear here so for for anesthesia uh, there, there might be an argument for not administering anesthesia past a certain time of day there might be an argument for that uh, one of the things that medical schools teaching hospitals have done well there's a, a good example of their ability to correct some of this problem uh, you might be familiar with what's called the July effect another temporal phenomenon in medicine. So in teaching hospitals, they have a whole round of new physicians who come in July. And these are people who are, you know, like 10 minutes out of medical school. And as a consequence, there was a huge amount of data showing that it was actually, July was the most dangerous month to be in, in a hospital if it was a teaching hospital. And, you know, I mean, there were incredible jumps in morbidity and mortality. Like, this is a pretty serious problem. Um, in, in the UK, where the cycle starts in August, they referred to August, they referred to this period literally as the August killing season. All right? So this is bad. So, and it's a temporal phenomenon that's, that's causing a problem. So what did, so, but many teaching hospitals have actually corrected this problem by doing the following. They're, instead of having these individual physicians 10 minutes out of medical school uh, doing things on their own, they, they start out by embedding them in teams. Uh, embedding them in teams um, so that there isn't, so there, so one person who is just a recent medical school grad isn't responsible for the totality of a patient's care, isn't responsible for making every single critical decision, but is embedded in a team. And once she's embedded in the team, she has a check on her uh, um, uh, decision making. And it's another way for her to learn. So as she goes in a few more months into this teaching hospital, she can be a better physician. And this ended up actually um, reducing significantly that July effect. So there are things that we can do. And, 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 and I, just to be fair to the questioner, you know, medical, I mean, hospitals are very complex places. Medical practice is very complex places. And um, the system is so messed up that I just, you know, I mean, I just, I honor people who are willing to become an RN in this kind of system or people who are willing to become a physician in this kind of system. How do you invest? How do I invest? Okay, so... Last time I was here, like four years ago, um, Tom asked me that question, and I came in with my asset allocation and was gently criticized by everybody in the audience <laughs> for tender. I don't want to say criticized. I was gently coached. It was. There was some tenderness to it because people were standing up and telling me what I was doing wrong, and I appreciate that. 
Uh, and the main thing was that I was too conservative. And so I actually came back. I had to look at this again. So here's where wow. I am. Wow. I, I actually did my due diligence here. So here's where I am. Uh, okay, I'll give you my theory of the case. My theory of the case is that I believe in the power of compounding interest and low fees. All right? Awesome. Com compounding interest and low fees are things that I can, like, there's empirical evidence that they actually have an effect. Um, I'm not as smart as David, so I, I don't trust my, my stock picking um, acumen. I wish I had followed basically all of the fool's recommendations over the last 15 years. I would be in a far better place, but I didn't. Um, and um, so, I, so um, I'm in, uh, uh, what I got? I got 70% uh, equities, 20% um, fixed income, and 10% like, uh, what is that? Oh, commodities. Cereal boxes. <laughs> Commodities. I guess that C is not Syria. It's commodities. I guess that's kind of a commodity. It's like oats or something in there. Um, commodities, uh, real estate, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm a little less conservative than I was before here, but I'm actually very conservative, and I'm I'm one of those people who I'm like I understand loss aversion and the dangers of loss aversion, but I still don't do anything about it. So, so like for my age, um, I probably should be less in fixed income, and um, I've also like paid off my house years ago because I don't like having debt. So, um, which is not a smart move either, so. I think it's a good instinct. Give yourself a pat on the back. For paying yeah, off my house? Sure, yeah. You think? Freedom. Wow, God, I feel so much better. So my heart is, <laughs> my heart is swelling with love so much that I might sing. Um, <laughs> Well, actually, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Dan, because to close, no. and we should close, although it's so much fun, I hate to do this, but I think we need to conclude. It's about 11.30, and so this, this is a Matt Greer special, so Matt Greer, who, is, who has brought you in and who's booked I've so known many Matt of our guests what, over the years. a long time. Yeah, he's written some great questions that we've asked on our radio shows over the years, and here's a Matt Greer special to close. Now, this is not in any way trying to uh, rival... Randy Zuckerberg, who was spectacular. No, I can't. Dan do that. is the first to say that he's not going to stand up and sing. He was offering to mime, but I think we can ask him to do better. So here's where we're going to head, Dan. So from your latest book, we learned that people prefer endings that elevate. So with that in mind, and because it's graduation season, we like for you to give a short oh, Jesus. commencement <laughs> address. You have 45 seconds or so for the graduates. Um, graduates of Motley Fool University gathered here today. It is an honor to be with you wearing this odd looking hat. Uh, you know, commencement means beginning, not end. As every commencement speaker since recorded time has said. So this is really the beginning of your investment career. And um, as you um, embark and go forward into the world, I encourage you to follow these two lessons. Two lessons that have been important to me. Two lessons that have shaped my life. Two lessons, one of which I haven't figured out just yet. Number one. Keep your fees low. <laughs> One of my proudest decisions was to go into an ETF that charges only four basis points. And that decision has changed my life. 
My second lesson, and I will leave you with this, graduates of Motley Fool University, is something that has been so meaningful to me that it's become hard for me to describe. And that is a, uh, that is a, a lesson that I've learned from the Gardner brothers, that more important than anything you invest in, more important than any other aspect of your life, the most important aspect of your life, personal and professional, is who you surround yourself with. So surround yourself with great people. Surround yourself with people like the Gardner brothers who care. Surround yourself with smart people who are committed to doing great things, who are innovative, and who are willing to embarrass their friends in front of 500 people. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Dan and God to all of you. And, yep, the end of that is always going to make me chuckle. All right, so coming up next week, it's the end of the month, so that means it's Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. Drop us a line, rbi at fool.com is the email address. If you have a question, thought, suggestion, or story to tell, we love it. And then coming up the following week, yep, I'm going to be back to picking stocks, five stocks celebrating the 2018 World Cup. So I'm going to be doing those and reviewing... Uh, Stocks I picked two years ago from the Brexit-inspired stock list. So, really looking forward to that one in two weeks. In the meantime, have a great rest of your weekend. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.